Hello, and welcome to the March podcast from the Vestibular Stake. This month, we are doing a review of the High Tech Gadget Show, which took place last month at CSM in Chicago. My name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at LSU, um, and we are very lucky today to have uh, three of the presenters at the conference with us today. We have Jeff Poder, Ann Galgon, and Judy Tilson, and I will have them introduce themselves uh, right now. We'll start with Jeff. Hi, my name is Jeff Hoder. I'm Assistant Professor of Neurology at VCU, and I see patients clinically in the VCU Parkinson's and Movement Disorder Center. Okay, we'll go with Ann. Hi, um, I'm Ann Galgon. I'm the Assistant Professor at Temple University, and I'm primarily teaching at an entry-level DPT program there. Um, I do a little bit of clinical at Temple University Hospital in vestibular rehab. Um, also the, chair, the vice chair of the vestibular SIG. And Julie. Uh, my name is Julie Tilson. I'm a, an assistant professor of clinical physical therapy at the University of Southern California. I've been uh, practicing vestibular rehab for 11 years, and I teach and do research in the area of uh, evidence-based practice and facilitating evidence-based practice through technology across all areas of practice. Okay. Wonderful. Welcome, and thank you for joining me. Um, Anne was actually the person to come up with the idea of doing this topic. Because the High Tech Gadget Show is so popular and we had a lot of tickets, we thought it would be really good um, to review for people who were at CSM who maybe didn't get a chance to attend um, or for people who didn't have the opportunity to um, attend in Chicago. So Anne, we'll start with you and if you could uh, describe the event and sort of describe what went on that morning. Yeah. Um, so what we... Uh, what we did was we had a session which we wanted to be somewhat informative but also be interactive so that the participants were able to actually look at some high technology and to actually evaluate it for clinical utility. And that was our primary goal was not so much all the devices that we showed but also really having the participants be engaged in looking at the utility of using it. Um, so the session ran, we had about maybe maybe 35 or 40 minutes where we did a presentation. Um, Cece Griffin, who was part of the Balance and Falls SIG, who also co-sponsored the event with us, um, presented at first, and then Jeff Hoyer, who will talk in a little bit, um, discussed um, several questions that we had outlined together about the way we should be looking at this technology. And then after that presentation, we had invited several um, individuals and companies to bring their devices into the room, and we spaced them out all over the room. And the members of the Balance and Fall SIG and the Vestibular SIG helped the participants go around the room and hopefully, and I think they did a really good job. It was well received, and most of the people I talked to felt like they got a good look at all the devices and were able to look at it and using our questions. Um, the devices varied from um, a small, more portable balance master type of device, the gate bite. Um, we had some apps. We had some video goggles, we had some accelerometers that Julie will talk about, and uh, I forgot the name of that device, Jeff, <laughs> oh, um, that with the Parkinson's patient, for which they gave you the visual projection, that was kind of cool. 
Anyway, um, so the rest of the time, um, the rest of that was about another hour or so that people, hour and a half almost, that people looked around the room. And it was very interactive, and I think the participants really loved it. Yeah, I know I enjoyed it. Um, so now more than ever, there's an abundance of new technology available to therapists. I think clinicians may be nervous about using technology. What benefits may arise, uh, may arise from utilizing technology? Julie, we'll have you field this one first. So I think there are a lot of potential benefits. The first one that comes to mind for me is that we can get objective measures in ways that we never were able to get before. So we can we can get beyond just how fast someone walks um, in our hallway um, to how much they're walking throughout the day and what speed they're walking and just information that takes what we do in the clinic and gives us so much more rich information about what's happening to our patients. And I think with those outcome measures, of course, that affects therapists' ability to judge the impact of their care. It gives patients motivation because they get excited about having details about how they're changing and improving. And of course, it gives payers more detailed information to understand the impact of what physical therapists do. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. The other thing that I think is really interesting is there are certainly a group of patients out there who are very excited by technology in their normal lives. And to have technology brought into their physical therapy environment is very positive for them. Uh, we've been doing some work with using iPads in the clinic, um, and one of the most powerful impacts that the iPads have had is on patient education. It gives so much rich information, and I really didn't anticipate that, actually. Um, but patients love it, at, at particularly a certain subset, your teenagers and your you know, high-tech um, early adopter patients um, have a whole different experience about what information the physical therapist has to bring versus my old stick figures that I used to draw for education. <laughs> Um, so, and I think there's a great story that led to one of the devices uh, that Jeff showed that I wanted to have him share about a patient's experience. Now, one of my one of my rude awakenings was two, I think, two years ago. Dr. Horak presented at a combined sessions meeting. Her research related to the use of the accelerometers with people with Parkinson's disease, and she described the story of performing a research study where she was evaluating somebody either having them stand on foam with their eyes closed or doing the dynamic gaze index and stepping over a shoebox. And the person was um, in the technology industry and thought it was ridiculous that we were evaluating and analyzing movement based upon such uh, rudimentary devices, stepping over a shoebox or standing on foam. And he actually approached her about utilizing more technology in her evaluation. and. One of the, um, after that talk, a group of clinicians, there was about 10 of us, got together and we were, all lived in different areas of the country and decided that we wanted to talk about it further. How could we utilize technology in our clinics? And we decided that we were going to meet together as a group in Oregon and we invited Dr. Horak to come to the scent to one of the clinics there and just introduce us to the technology and um, let us ask the questions. Uh, how we thought it could be integrated into our clinics and what we thought was useful about the device. And it turned into more of a focus group, but it just sort of 
explained or, or was telling to me that there needs to be a relationship between the clinicians, the researchers, and the, the companies that are manufacturing the devices. Um, because a lot of the devices that are being used in research were initially designed to go straight into the clinic. And they want the devices to be more user-friendly. Uh, so that really inspired me to incorporate more technology into my clinic. And is there anything else you can add um, about what benefits can come from clinicians utilizing technology? I think um, when I hear Julie's explanation, it hits probably my opinion about it, is that as we get better at objectifying um, the performance our patients are doing and looking at different elements of what we measure, then we do a better job at deciding how we're going to intervene and also showing the progress. And it probably makes us more efficient and effective. And when you can do that, then you are going to be more attractive to your referral base and possibly, you know, I think you can be more attractive to your payer because the payers want to you to provide efficient and effective care. And it's just one component that um, is, is really essential for knowing how well you're doing with your patient and, um, and evaluating your, your own effectiveness. Okay. So I think we all know out there that not every device is um, going to be very useful or not every device um, is going to be perfect. So we need to approach these devices with somewhat of a, a critical eye. Um, so, Jeff, you did a really good job at the presentation of outlining how do we critically appraise technology. That is, how, do, how does a therapist figure out if a certain device is both clinically feasible for you and your patient, easy to use? So when we were, we were talking about putting together the presentation, a big part of it became inspiring therapists to be more critical about the things that are out there. You know, um, late night television and infomercials has really inspired a lot of our patients and the population that we see to find the magic pill in sort of different exercise devices. My dad has the ab rocket and a million other devices in his basement because they're all going to heal his back. So we thought that especially with the, the internet and the access to information that we as therapists needed to take a more critical eye to the technology that's out there. So as a group, we came up with 10 different questions that we thought would be useful to, to guide clinicians during our um, session as they went through the different devices. So the first one is, what's the intended purpose of the device? And we were really trying to look at a device based upon the ICS model. Was the device designed to either evaluate or intervene at a body structure or function level, at an impairment level? Or was it designed to look at activities, maybe sit to stand or gait or um, anything more than activity level? And then finally, at a participation level, um, maybe sports-specific activity or work-related activity or work-hardening. And then the second question was, was the device um, measured to be valid and reliable? And if so, if uh, validity and reliability testing were done on the device, in what populations were they specifically done? Was there any normative data established for, for the device? So is the score that's generated meaningful in any way? Um, or is it just 
collecting objective data so you can track change. Uh, number four, how will this device enhance our clinical practice? So relating to the question that you were asking, what's the benefit of bringing technology into the clinic? You know, a part of us, we're, we were all discussing that um, there's going to be a population that will drive us or force us to have technology in the clinic because they're growing up in a technology age. So they won't understand if they walk into a clinic and have to pay a $30 copay and we're not utilizing some of the technology that's available. So asking that question, how will it enhance our practice? Uh, number five, does the measure offer any predictive information? So can the device allow us to do a fall risk assessment, as an example? Um, number six, is the device safe and user-friendly? And when I was looking into safety, I was immediately drawn to the FDA labeling and what sort of goes into FDA requiring a device to um, receive an FDA label and be reviewed by the FDA or be FDA approved. And that really speaks to how the device is being marketed. If the device is being marketed for an intended population, then the FDA needs to approve that to establish uh, safety to the, uh, the general public. Number seven, is the manufacturer of the device reputable and established? Number eight, what is the feasibility of utilizing the device in my clinic? So what are the current spacing issues that we may have or scheduling issues or timing issues? How long does it take to set up the device? If it does take a long time, can the device be left out? And um, if it's going to be left out, how much space does it take and how much are we going to be utilizing it? Number nine, how do I bill for the device's use? And then finally, number 10, what's the overall cost of the device? And in my professional opinion, as the therapist, is it worth it? Is the benefit that I'm going to get from the device outweigh the cost, or at least match the cost? Good. Jeff, Jeff that was a um, very, very good review of what went on. Um, so in terms of, Julie, do you, in terms of the benefit of the device outweighing the cost, um, how do you feel that we can go about figuring that out? So I think there's a very, um, well, there's the, the big picture way and then there's the real world way. The big picture way, which I do think matters, is is there evidence to support the device? So that way you can actually look at, is this device effective? A lot of the things that Jeff just talked about. but. For many devices, that doesn't exist, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider trialing them in our clinics. We just need to do it with caution. Um, and likewise, even if there's great evidence out there, it's often not testing it in a clinical environment. It's more of a research environment. So what I think can work uh, is if clinicians can team up with, either team up with a university where the um, device makers are more likely to donate trial equipment or convince the device makers to do a trial um, and then actually put it into practice uh, and give yourself time to get over the learning curve. Anytime you do something new, that short-term investment is high for the benefit that you get. But I think that the real way to tell if you're going to have a benefit in your clinic is to trial things. Um, and I think that the, whether or not the cost matches or um, is whether or not you get benefit to fit the cost, I think becomes inherent 
once you've given that device a chance to work? Sometimes no, sometimes yes. Now, that may not always be feasible. Device makers are not out there excited about giving away trial equipment or even loaning trial equipment. Um, so when that's not possible, I think the other alternative uh, is to set aside some research and development money for a clinic or a hospital environment to say, you know, we're going to invest in a few devices that we think are going to work um, with the understanding that, one, you have to be prepared to go through the learning curve. Don't give up before you're through that. And two, not every one is going to work out. Um, but I do hope that we can find more opportunities for clinicians to go to PT schools. We have 226 of them around the country and say, I'd really like to trial this device. Would you help me um, get the device makers to feel comfortable donating it so because it's in more of a, a scholarly environment? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, that. I was going to say, so, Anne, do you have anything to add to that, either Anne or Jeff? Um, Julie, you must have done such an excellent job answering. Uh, no, I think I would kind of agree with Julie in that many times it, it, it's getting the time with the device and seeing, it, you know, the effectiveness of it or the utilization that, and and that period when you're first learning how to use the device that I think oftentimes clinicians um, will, you know, have a hard time with and that. I think those are excellent ideas as to how to go about looking at devices and seeing devices to see if they would actually work in your clinic and for your patients. And I also think we're we're being educated as as movement scientists, and um, if given the opportunity to be more objective about how we're measuring change, that's going to help us justify our worth. I mean, I think what tends to happen is we have harder and harder times justifying uh, better care or, or longer care with patients. And as a result, we tend to be, in my, in my opinion, very reactive to the changing healthcare environment. And as an example, one of my um, colleagues who's not a physical therapist in our center is going to physical therapy for hip pain, and the therapist wants to see them three days a week. And she says that's over $100 in copay for the entire week. So if, if patients are being required to pay larger co-pays, they have to feel that what you're offering is unique and is really going to um, get to the bottom of the problem and, and address a very specific need. And if technology can help with that, I think that's great. But um, it requires being very critical about the technology that you bring into the clinic. Um, it may look neat or, or, or be a, a clever gadget, but, you know, is it really going to justify the expense that the consumer is paying to see you as a, as a professional? Mm -hmm. um, so, Anne, another question kind of going along those lines. As physical therapists get you know, more technical and we're starting to utilize a lot of this technology, um, do you think that we'll start to see added reimbursement to help support the use of the, these devices? Yeah, and I, I, I think, again, there, there's probably a, you know, point where a piece of device, its whole value will um, be um, be bought out, you know, through your billing. But I think if you are, I, I think I said this before, but I'm going to reiterate it. 
if you're able to measure your patients well and if you use effective interventions, um, then you will be able to have a better outcome. And I think if the technology helps to document better, if the technology is supportive, it supports an, an, uh, your therapeutic um, procedures in a way that the patient is more engaged and the patient can have uh, a better outcome, then I think it will have an effect on the reimbursement because you as a clinician can market your your success at but with, with that technology. Um, and I, it may, you know, depending on how much of an entrepreneur you are, it may also help to bring in the referrals if physicians and clients know that you are the therapist that's using the technology as opposed to the therapist with the shoebox. Jeff, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. The population that I see, uh, primarily those with Parkinson's disease, you know, there's been such compelling research about the benefits of exercise and whether exercise is potentially neuroprotective, can delay the onset of this disease. And a lot of the outcome measures that are out there tend to either have a floor or ceiling effect. Either the outcome measures are too easy for patients to do when they're very early in the disease process or they're just far too difficult. Uh, so that's, to me, the, the technology that I've seen out there can add to my clinical practice because it'll be more sensitive to change early in the disease process and late in the disease process. And if I'm able to measure change, then these are patients that might not have been referred to me because they're not really sure what physical therapy can offer them. But if I can enhance their programs and show a change, albeit a small but significant one, then that's going to help my clinical practice. Julie, anything to add? Uh, the only thing I'd add is that for devices that are focused on intervention rather than uh, outcome measurements, you know, it's always hard to change payment systems, but clearly what we need is to be able to show that those devices have better outcomes, and then at least we can make a case to payers that they should be paid for. Okay. Um, so let's uh, talk. Oh, sorry, Jessica. No, I was just going to say, and also the other um, benefits of technology is our understanding of neuroplasticity, that to cause change in the brain, we need thousands and thousands of repetitions. And sometimes if technology engages you or motivates you and, and we can track usage then for intervention, maybe the devices will have a, a, a big place in our clinic. Or as we move to doing, hopefully in the future, telerehabilitation to those places that necessarily can't come to specialized clinics, but they have... Um, video gaming systems or things that we could integrate into our programs that we could adapt to achieve the goals that we want, but um, allow people to do all of these repetitions and they're fun. Um, so we have about 15 minutes left, so I think what we'd like to do is spend, um, have each participant spend about five minutes talking about some of the uh, devices that they helped with at the event. Um, so we'll start with Anne, who was going to talk about the 
uh, vestibular goggles and some of the optokinetic stimulation devices. So, um, the, in preparation for our um, our presentation, we all kind of reviewed um, several of the devices, and so this is, these are two of the devices that I kind of looked at. And frontal lenses and video goggles have been around for uh, quite a while. They're not like new technology. However, I think some of the video goggle systems are getting more. Uh, there are more stuff attached to them, so you have to decide, you know, when, when you buy them, you know, what what do you want? Um, do you want something very basic, or do you want to add in other functions? So a frenzel, just to get, so in case individuals don't understand what these devices are, their their frenzel lenses are just a um, a goggle system with the magnification and a lighting system, and the um, what the these systems do particularly, it allows the clinician to really enhance their visual observation of eye movements. And um, this may be important for identifying abnormal oculomotor uh, control or identifying nystagmus that maybe um, you cannot see as well in, in just the room lighting. Um, and certain components of the vestibular eval when we're trying to look at impairments in the system, so kind of on the ICF model, body functions, <laughs> that question, um, yeah, it requires you to kind of look at the eyes when you can't, um, the eyes can't see, or when there's uh, fixation has been removed. So the goggle systems allow you to do parts of your assessment um, that you probably couldn't do in the clinical setting without them. Um, certain tests that we do in vestibular systems, like um, head shaking um, nystagmus, um, provoked nystagmus, um, really does require some kind of uh, either a frenzel or a video goggles, um, and it it can be. So I think I had sensitivity of like 46% and specificity of 75% to look at the relationship of. Um, abnormal nystagmus and unilateral vestibular involvement compared to like a calorie test. So they're, um, they have some um, research behind them to support their use in the clinic. Um, the frenzel glasses, again, are magnification systems, and they're not very expensive. They might probably run about like $500 to $800. Um, but they take a little bit more effort for the clinician to use because you have to have the room in a dark environment, and you have to kind of get down and look into the eyes and clearly see them. Um, so the clinician has to work a little bit harder. The video goggles, on the other hand, there's a camera embedded into the goggles so that you can hook the video system into a monitor, and it's dark within the goggles. So you can work with the patient much easier and observe the eyes, and they're much larger, um, so it's a much easier system to identify some impairments um, in the system. And they can run, you know, anywhere from maybe about $1,600 for a single camera that's in one of the eyes to maybe $3,000 or more if you want to get a binocular system. Um, I recently got a binocular system, and it's, you know, it's it's great. It, you can do quite a few things with it. Um, Besides looking at the eyes together, you can um, have the – there's lights in it that allows the person to fixate and then not be fixate. Um, and 
as a teacher, they're great tools as well to show the ocular motor system. Um, I've also found uh, recently when I was taking um, some work on post-concussive patients, they're finding that there is quite a few ocular motor abnormalities that are being picked up with video goggles in individuals that are post-concussive, and that before they were really looking at this, um, they were not, they did not recognize these um, impairments. And some of them just include more ocular motor alignment problems in kids and also some convergence spasms. Um, and that has helped them, I think, by identifying that, um, help them uh, devise better treatments um, for these um, kids and athletes that have had concussion. Um, the other um, item, excuse me, device that I had looked at um, were um, the optic kinetic stimulation devices. Um, so optic kinetic stimulation is a therapeutic intervention, and it was designed in order to reduce symptoms in individuals that have visual motion sensitivity. Um, in England, they term this visual vertigo. There's quite a bit of research being done on that there, and we had a speaker at CSM, Maruva Pavlov, who actually did uh, two different presentations and was at our um, our session. And the mechanism that optic kinetic stimulation works is um, based on central nervous system habituation, such that you provide a provocative stimulation, and hopefully over time the individual has a reduction in their um, visual motion sensitivity. Um, there's been quite a bit of work that has coming out to show that individualized optokinetic programs, or at least supervised optokinetic programs, is decreasing visual motion sensitivity and also visual dependence. Um, the form of optic kinetic um, stimulation has not really been the best form. So which types of optic kinetic stimulation or which types of devices hasn't probably been decided. Um, and there may be various ways that you can stimulate the optic kinetic system and get this habituation training. Um, so the types of devices that are available can run from pretty low um, and to maybe a little bit more expensive, but as a whole, um, what you can have in the clinic is probably not very costly, although many laboratories have pretty expensive um, devices all the way through some of the virtual virtual reality type of devices that can be um, quite expensive. Um, but a simple optic kinetic device is like a disco ball, which presents a um, visual um, rotatory stimulation as lights go across the person and stimulate the visual system. Um, and that, you know, can run anywhere from like, there's really cheap ones you can buy from like Spencer's gift for like $25, um, all the way out to some ceiling mounted, you know, glass balls that might be 100 to $200. Um, and those you can like vary the speed that gives you a little bit more um, way of slowly building up the tolerance that someone has towards the optic kinetic stimulation. Um, what we showed at our session was uh, a DVD 
that um, Maruva Pavlov had developed, and it it essentially is run off a laptop, and it provides at different speeds. You can provide either she had vertical lines, but also um, I think she had one that was kind of like dots that were rotating around, and it could be used in your clinic, and it also could be used to give to a patient so they could stimulate their cells as part of a home program. Um, and it seems like um, these, um, the evidence right now is saying, you know, as I said, that supervision, meaning that you're encouraging, you're providing support to the patient while they do these, the optokinetic stimulation um, appears to um, have pretty good benefit um, and uh, these individuals can return back to um, community level type of activities um, better than um, maybe continued this other types of vestibular activities or just other types of exercise. Great. Does anybody um, have a question? <laughs> And you did such a good job. Everyone uh, does not have a question. Um, I do. So, I have a question. Oh, yeah. Sorry. What do you use in practice? Um, you demonstrated these. What do you? Yeah. Um, I'm actually when we were there, and also speaking, hearing Maruva um, speak in her sessions, it kind of like opened up a world of possibilities for me. So I'm trying to do more different types of stimulation. Traditionally, when I was first learning to be a vestibular therapist, we used to just put like a complex background, like a you know vertical lines or a checkerboard, and we used to make patients shake their head, you know, and that would provoke them. Um, but I've used sometimes I use that very low tech. We use the disco ball, so um, we'll have that the the lights projected on the wall and you can put the patient in the room. Um, you usually have to be very careful depending on how severe their symptoms are and you may even start with like 30 second bouts and then progress them to you know up to two minutes and then come out of the room. They may come back and repeat it. Um, um, what some interesting ideas that she was talking about was included things like using um, there are um, um, excuse me, there are on YouTube, people have gone out and videotaped um, images of people walking through grocery mall, grocery stores and walking down busy, busy streets. And she's actually using that as home program where individuals will watch, basically get close to their laptop and then watch the video as it comes towards them, and it's almost like they're in the mainstream of a street or they're in a grocery store and watching the camera, you know, slide over these, um, you know, rows of products, and it's quite provoking. And the therapist, when you talk about supervision, helps the patient problem solve, like, where do you want to focus while you're doing that in order to get the best benefit? Do you want to pick targets out in the field or do you want to... Um, so I'm really kind of, I need some patients. So I have a small practice. I'm looking for the right patients to start to try other forms of optokinetic stim just than the plain disco ball or the, you know, moving your head while there's complex background information. Well, to me, it makes so much sense. I mean, we're dealing with people that 
have trouble with sensory integration and they reweight certain sensory systems and people can become very visually dependent. And like you were saying, Ann, that traditionally I think for vestibular rehab we've utilized things like checkerboards. But if we have the technology to even do something as simple as create a busy environment like you're walking down the street while right. you're while the person is standing still or while they're doing the VOR times one exercise, it's going to be more um, realistic. Absolutely. So it makes so much sense. Yeah, and I, that was the thing I found the most interesting when I heard her speak. Like, so just even though you can use a very formal same type of stimulation, increase the speed, increase the duration that you stimulate them, there are a whole load of other things that you could probably find that are low tech, such as already made public videos on YouTube, <laughs> which I thought was yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, Jeff, next I'll have you discuss the APDM. Okay, so as I said, the, the devices were um, validated with people with Parkinson's disease. So it was the idea of using accelerometers, which are very commonplace now. I mean, we have them in our smartphones, and we allow us to use a smartphone to steer a video game and um, do basic balance exercises with them. So the idea of using these accelerometers, and I know Julie's going to talk about different versions of, virgin, uh, versions of them as well, but they, uh, they did, the design was to use six of them, one on each wrist, each ankle, one on the sternum, and one on the sacrum, and create an algorithm that measured um, performance and movement during some of the tests that we were already using in clinic. So they called it the iTug. Um, so using the timed up and go and the accelerometer data to collect kinematic data about step length, step width, speed, number of steps in the um, 180 degree turn in the middle of the test, time from sit to stand, time to initiate stand. So the timed up and go is one test that they wrote an algorithm for. The other one was the clinical test of sensory interaction on balance, the modified cat sit, so the Romberg eyes open and closed on and off foam. Another one is just walking um, normally down the hallway uh, up to seven meters to seven kilometers, and one just standing in place walking and turning 180 degrees because of the uh, sensitivity that they were finding with utilizing the 180-degree turn when looking at people that were control groups versus people that were early onset or um, early in the disease process with Parkinson's disease. And they found that even though these were clinical tests that a lot of clinicians are already utilizing, the cat tip and the timed up and go and just a normal gait speed, by adding the element of collecting the kinematic data, they were much more sensitive to pick up change in people that uh, were really early in the disease process. And because they were studied with the Parkinson's population, that's what drew me to the devices. And I have Julie, a couple okay. of other accelerometers that she was going to describe. Okay, Julie. So we looked at two others. Uh, one was the Step Activity Monitor, which is made by OrthoCare Innovations. And the Step Activity Monitor is pretty much the gold standard. It's been out there for a long time. Uh, it's used quite extensively in research. It's a small device, um, maybe half the size of an iPhone. Uh, it goes on one ankle, 
uh, straps on uh, the ankle and measures uh, steps and step patterns and step times. Um, its main thing that's different from that simple pedometer that you can get in your Happy Meal at McDonald's is that it is highly uh, reliable and is particularly good for patients with abnormal gait patterns, which is obviously something that we deal with a lot. Uh, so normal pedometers, if you have a patient who has a lot of trunk mo motion as they walk, um, are not going to get uh, a reliable uh, step count. Uh, but the step activity monitor uh, is very reliable. It's got normative data. It's been studied and extensively across um, many populations, including um, most large neurologic populations. Uh, so I looked at that one because we had used it in the LEAPS trial, which is the Locomotor Experience Applied Post-Stroke Study. Uh, the step activity monitor, we call it SAM for short, uh, was our primary measure of participation uh, as we looked at walking recovery among patients with stroke uh, in their first year. So we had all kinds of other measures of gait, but the one way that we were actually able to know how patients were doing when they weren't with us uh, in the clinic was by having them wear the step activity monitor for two days. Um, the other device is uh, the, the Dynaport um, Move Monitor. And it, instead of being something that's worn on the ankle, is actually worn um, around the waist the measurement device is actually um, kind of between the PSIS. And it does a lot more than the step activity monitor in that it looks at, um, it's a triaxial um, accelerometer, and it can actually detect um, what type of activity are someone lying down, sitting, standing, walking. Um, it can measure transitions between activities. It can measure the steps that you take. Uh, and it can actually measure the intensity of the movement. So when I was practicing wearing it before CSM, it could tell if I were, was running or walking. Um, and I even wore it, because um, I figured I wouldn't sleep anyways in the hotel, I wore it uh, the night before because they do an assessment of sleep patterns. And it was actually fascinating. I could actually see how much time I spent on my left side versus my right side versus my back and how often I made um, major shifts in position during the night. Not something that we have really any other way to measure besides watching a videotape, which doesn't sound very interesting. And it would uh, take so a very long time. It would take a very long time. So that was something that, you know, a lot of our patients have issues with sleep, right? And if you're not sleeping well, you're probably not going to recover well physically. Uh, so that was kind of a surprise, fun thing um, that the Dynaport Move Monitor provided. Uh, so, and now the Dynaport Move Monitor, um, which is made by McRoberts, if people are looking for it online, um, McRoberts, and it's in the Netherlands, uh, the company, that has not been studied as extensively as the Step Activity Monitor. It's newer. Um, there is some. Uh, evidence for it. They've looked at it in patients uh, with Parkinson's disease. Uh, they looked at it for patients with stroke uh, and amputee, amputees. Uh, it's not as robust as far as reliability goes, 
but it certainly provides a broader plethora of information. Uh, and they're doing a lot of work, the company is right now, in trying to identify fall risk. I don't know that they're quite there yet, but they're hoping to be able to identify patterns of near falls and fall risk. So that's something to be watching. Now, the interesting thing about these two devices, I thought, uh, as far there's to me, it's really clear how if I sent my patient home at the beginning of their treatment, at their midterm eval, and at the end of their treatment, I would get a very rich uh, data set of information about how their life activities have changed. Uh, but these are very expensive devices, uh, which made for some good conversation at the CSM uh, presentation. So the step watch, uh, the step activity monitor, um, to get one with all of the software and docking station and everything that comes with it is $1,500. And then subsequent units are around $500. So there's a big cash outlay there. I can tell you it's fairly user friendly, so that's nice. But that's, that's an expense that you'll notice for a small clinic. Um, and we had problems in the LEAP study with people losing them. Um, so at $500 a pop, um, that's something that you need to account for in your budgeting. Uh, the Dynaport Move Monitor is actually a little bit less expensive. The first one uh, with all of the software and all the other parts that go with it is uh, $975. Uh, and then you pay, uh, actually the way it works is you purchase one for $975 and then after that there's an annual fee of $325 because they do uh, the reports for you. You actually upload the data to their secure website and they send you back all these uh, very pretty uh, useful reports. So the big picture with these is both of them are uh, you know, at least $1,000 and up to $2,000 to get started with it. And the question that a lot of people asked was, how much better is this than a pedometer? Um, I think that with the right population and with the therapist that's willing to um, commit themselves to integrating this into their practice, there's a lot of opportunity uh, for growing the amount of information that we have about patients when they're not in our clinic. Uh, but it's certainly not um, a small cash outlay um, for many instances. So, Jeff or Ann, do either of you have questions for Julie about those devices? No, what's really interesting, the last, I didn't realize that, the last device that you were talking about, the Dynaport, um, one of the concerns with Parkinson's disease is that people can have REM behavior uh, disorders and they have uh, vivid dreams and they act out physically in their dreams during REM sleep when our body is supposed to be paralyzed and they think sometimes this REM behavior disorder precedes the motor symptoms of Parkinson's by sometimes 10 to 15 years and they've been I know looking at a way to better quantify somebody's movement during sleep so I'm curious if that's some of the research that's being done with that with the Parkinson's population. I think it may have been um, that they were looking at Parkinson's. It may have been that the original sleep studies that they did um, naturally were uh, in patients with who were did not have any health conditions just to see what they could learn with sleep. Uh, but they have looked at it with patients with COPD, 
Parkinson's disease and amputees specifically. Uh, so there is a study in the handouts um, that I think people who attended CSM can still get, but it was um, Spielman, S-P-E-E-L-M-A-N, in 2011 is the Parkinson's disease. It looks oh, okay. as I'm looking at it here, Jeff, like that was a walking study, so not sleeping. Okay. But very interesting. And then the other thing I'm, with the APDM uh, accelerometers, they're also quite expensive. So they can sell, you can buy them in different packages. You don't have to buy them in a group of six. Um, they sell them in packages of, I think, three, six, and, and different. You can even just wear one around the sacrum to do the eye sway, which is the uh, instrumented uh, clinical test sensory interaction on balance. But yeah, they're. Two to three thousand dollars per device, and then around fifteen to sixteen thousand dollars if you buy the set of six. And and that is a huge cost for some clinics. But I also know that there are clinics that have posturography systems that are closer to seventy, eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. So it may be something in between if it's going to give you um, really valuable data to yeah. to analyze. But I, I really think, especially with the activity monitors. It's a way of really looking at people's activity and seeing about compliance or activity levels when they go home to really explain some of the either lack of clinical change or uh, dramatic clinical change that we're seeing. So I think and, I, and I think especially as um, you know, as people's co-pays get higher, a lot of physical therapists are having to rely on the home exercise program more and really analyzing a lot of that. So this gives you just another way to objectively capture that data that's going on at home when you're not seeing them. Yeah. Uh, part of it, again, is looking at the population that you have and how frequently you can use the device. And um, I know those accelerometers for activity level have been used a lot in you know, the pediatric population to look at activities in pediatrics and also, you know, for um, I think in um, weight loss programs for kids to look for their, you know, um, they're looking to see they're increasing their activity levels by counting steps and um, throughout the day and as an outcome to um, an intervention to in increase activity or energy in production. So there's probably multiple areas that these can be used, not just in the neurologic population. And probably if you're identifying you need to do this, you know, you're you're asking your patient what you're doing, but you're not getting good. And that seems to be a high population. These types of devices probably will be more cost-effective for you. And a lot of older adults are starting to use pedometers. and and. To echo what Julie said, you know, with the populations of patients that we're, we're seeing, they may be highly inaccurate, uh, so that not reflecting somebody's performance at all. So we um, may be better served in the clinics utilizing these uh, more sensitive devices. And unfortunately, those that have a lot of research behind them, when they finally get to market, generally cost a lot more. So it's that it's that trade-off that yes, they cost more, but you can be assured that maybe there was more research to back them up than the devices that are just going straight to the market that aren't FDA approved because they're not targeting a specific patient population um, that are trying to be generally used in the, in the public as a whole. 
when um, my I questioned Julie when you looked at these devices, and uh, it sounds even like the accelerometers that you are using are less expensive than the um, the devices. Um, I'm sorry, I always forget the names of that for the iTug and the iSway. Are they finding that as the technology improves, that those sensors, which are really the most expensive part, are getting um, are decreasing? Or, as, or is it more that as they add more ways of analyzing the data, the, the equipment is getting more expensive? No, I think actually that they're, the microprocessors are giving them more and more opportunities to make, you know, as computing gets more powerful and more robust, that I think that they're able to make them less expensive. I know that the Dynaport Move Monitor people were very excited that they were getting their devices down to something where, you know, you could deploy a large number of them in a certain clinic setting or something. So I think that we should, we will hopefully see the costs coming down, although we do, I think Jeff put it really well, we pay for that research and development to create them and to develop them, you know, so there's always that additional cost so that we can, they can keep improving the product. Well, I think you guys did a great job um, discussing what went on and discussing the whole process of critically appraising technology and discussing the devices. Um, is there anything you guys would like to say in closing before we sign off? I just want to thank the vestibular SIG and the Balance and Falls SIG for doing what I think was a really innovative program and uh, for turning this into even something people can learn afterwards. I think it was fantastic, and I hope we do more things like it. Absolutely. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's from the vestibular SIG. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Anne, Julie, and Jeff, thank you very much for being with me tonight. Um, and have a good evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you as well.